This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by, once again, my friend, Chick-fil-A. We are such Chick-fil-A fans in this office. Franklin, they have upped the ante yet again, rolling out the new Chick-fil-A with pimento cheese sandwich. And I know uh, you've gotten sideways with those in the last couple of weeks. What's going on with that sandwich, Franklin? I think it's been out a little more in a week and I've had it twice. So yeah, the honey pepper pimento chicken sandwich. The peppers are key. And the first time I had it, they're like jalapeno peppers. I had little jalapeno peppers. I don't know if it was like the ends of the jalapeno peppers or they just happened to get a bunch of little ones, but they were little ones. And then I got the slices and, and the next one. It's great either way. The jalapeno does a lot to pull it all together. I'm a big pimento cheese snob too. I, I, I love pimento cheese on anything. I always have pimento cheese in the fridge. Growing up, uh, moms used to ho- make homemade pimento cheese. So I basically live, have lived off of pimento cheese most of my life. So when I saw this post, I was, uh, it wasn't going to be long before I got over there to get my mitts own one. And it is, it is pretty delicious, my friend. Uh, and the advertising, I have not in full disclosure had it yet. And that's just happy chance. We had a hurricane here. There's a lot going on. Uh, I haven't made my way over to the filet yet, but in the advertising, it's paired with a delicious looking milkshake. Uh, did you have the milkshake with it? No, no. You know, I would give up all the nuclear secrets with, for a milkshake. You know, my, my passion for milkshakes. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. So can't wait to get uh, next to that sandwich. What is it again, Franklin? The pimento honey, honey pimento sandwich from Chick-fil-A? Honey, honey pepper pimento chicken sandwich. It's their traditional original chicken sandwich without the pickles, with honey drizzled on top, pimento mm. underneath, mm. and then uh, jalapeno peppers. So mm. it's a good mixture. That you... You'd be surprised at how important the peppers are to pull it all together. You really need the pepper in there. The pepper-honey balance mixed with the pimento cheese. They got some geniuses over there in the uh, in the kitchen. They really do. Let, let me tell you about a man named mm. Sounds so good. I can't wait to get in there. And on that delicious note, let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. I'm proud to be a bartender. Mr. Vice President speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the new proposed overtime rule is out, and we'll discuss the impact. Better than we thought, worse than we thought, or about what we thought. We'll discuss what's going on, the process going forward, and what's next for operators. And the NLRB released yet another decision last month, the Stericycle decision, that may make every employer rewrite large segments of their employee handbooks. We'll explain. And the right of centers engaging in the actual culture wars, music and cinema namely, and creating new markets that are flummoxing those on the left. We'll do a deep dive into yet another growing divide. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, we're back after a little respite for the Labor Day holiday and the the dog days of summer. But man, it has been probably the busiest August in Washington, D.C. that anyone 
an official Washington has worked in 30 years. I mean, NLRB was firing off decisions like a fire hose to get to the end of Gwen Wilcox's uh, term and the overtime, new overtime rule that we've all been anticipating finally made its debut. It is now uh, part of the conversation. We know where it stands. Franklin, what is your take on the, the, the new proposed overtime rule from the Department of Labor? Oh, uh, well, uh, it's not unexpected. We, we knew it was coming. We, we know that there will probably be legal challenges to this once it gets through the process. Let me just say, Joe, where we are in the process, just re- kind of restate that. So the proposed rule has been released. That triggers a 60-day comment period, which is required by law, of course. And then the, the agency will take those comments and look at those comments and tweak the rule and then submit a release a final rule that will then effectively become the law of the land. At that point, you're probably likely to see some some legal challenges depending on you know what makes it into the final rule. So to answer your question, Joe, was not surprised. We expected this was coming. The dollar figure is a lot. You know, we're going up to fifty-five thousand a year is the new threshold from thirty-five thousand and change. It's worth noting this is not as dramatic as the Obama era overtime rule, which was eventually struck down. Was the overtime threshold at that time was lower? It was somewhere around uh, twenty-five thousand, twenty-three thousand, somewhere in that range. And essentially, the Obama era rule would would have taken it up to like fifty thousand, forty-seven thousand, something like that. So it was basically doubling it. We're not we're not doubling the threshold here. Twenty thousand is a big jump, though. There's no doubt about that, Joe. You can whip your calculator out and see what percentage increase we're, we're talking about. But it's it's not doubling it, which was the Obama era. I do think there are some elements in here, in addition to the threshold, that are going to be concerning for employer groups. You know, the big thing is, you know, I think there's an automatic escalator in, included in here kind of year over year. A lot of arguments last time focused on, you know, that the enabling legislation did not allow for the agency to put in automatic escalators. And so, you know, that may be something that that faces challenges in the future. The other issue here that the employer community is always watching for is tweaks and changes to the duties test. And um, I think you have some of that in here as well. So, uh, that will also be something that the employer community is watching closely and will, you know, be subject to challenge as well. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. You know, we had we had legislation, progressives in Congress introduced legislation to push that threshold to $78,000 a year. I think much of the business lobby in D.C. anticipated that while the the labor department wouldn't meet that standard, uh, that threat, that level, it was still going to be higher. I think when the final number came out, I think a lot of the business community was like, "Huh, we thought it would be a, a lot worse." Not not that it's not a big jump, but they just thought it would be a lot worse than that. The duties test you mentioned, the duties test, yeah, there was a couple minor tweaks to that, but that stayed largely intact. And I know the business community lobbyists were. Worried about that. 
I think the, I think the interesting piece is this automatic kicker that you referenced and whether the overriding statute gives the labor department the authority uh, to go down that road with an automatic tinker, or if it's not specifically stated, does it prevent them from going down that road? And that's why God made courts and lawyers and will probably that piece for sure uh, will be the subject of litigation. I don't know that the the level, you know, the, the DOL sending a threshold level of salaries is well within their statutory scope. So I, you know, I know that a lot of trade associations will will do some, you know, perfunctory lawsuits to keep your membership happy and blah 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 and go through the motions. But I, I am super interested on the CPI automatic escalator kicker, and if that is upheld, man, that has ramifications for other regulations within this particular agency and, and all other governmental agencies. So it's super, I find that part super interesting. It's important because um, the way the overtime standard has worked since basically the enacting legislation, the Fair Labor Standards Act is every now and again, the labor department increases the threshold and sometimes changes the duties test. As you stated, those are, those are pretty firmly established. And we go through this every now and again. Trump administration raised it, you know, Obama administration tried to raise it and failed because they they did a bunch of things. Bush administration raised it. You know, we have this constant cadence, but an automatic escalator would every year after year, we would have it automatically changing. And so that would be a big deal. That'd be a really big deal. Um, the Obama administration tried to, they did a bunch of stuff that was a huge departure from what had been done historically. They had automatic escalators in there. They had regional breakouts. They had all kinds of double the threshold, you know, and ultimately, uh, you know, it got hung up in the courts as a result. The Biden administration, what they are seeking to do here is not nearly as aggressive and as many changes as what the Obama administration tried to pull off. There are small tweaks here and there. The duties test is one. And then to your point, Joe, the escalator is the biggie. That's the big thing that they're going to float a trial balloon on here and see if it makes it through the process. Yeah. So super interesting, you know, unless you, you know, your head's been buried in the sand for years, you know, you had to have known uh, this was coming. Uh, Your, 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 you know, your corporate folks, the, 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 the bean counters knew this was coming. Uh, I just, again, I'm, I'm not trying to, advocate one way or the other. I just thought for sure, I think most people were, the consensus was that that threshold would have been higher than that, maybe up into the the low sixties. But, um, you know, it's one of those issues where, you know, we, we, we all collectively pay the penalty for a few bad actors and abusing, you know, those workers, uh, you know, put it, paying somebody just under the threshold and working them 70 hours a week, you know, Employ- the employment community really, in a lot of ways, has themselves to blame that we even are fighting this issue on a kind of, you know, not an ongoing basis, but maybe on an ongoing basis. But um, like I say, I, I think the business community kind of, I don't know, had a collective sigh of relief. Obviously, we'll do the litigation on a couple of pieces of it, including the, the, the stair steppers. But I think that I think I mean, my personal opinion, the industry dodged a big bullet here. Could have been worse. Could have been worse. And it's, it's, I think I said automatic escalators every one year, Joe, it's every three years. 3.6 yeah. million workers are projected to be swept in to this that, that, you know, weren't before. So it's, 
you know, the unions are celebrating that 3.6 workers are going to be now eligible for overtime pay, either through the threshold or the duties test that weren't before. So to your point, Joe, could have been worse. There's a lot of like assistant managers and restaurants that definitely are on that line as to whether or not they're an employee or a, or a manager. And, you know, we've always got to be careful about how we do that. And this is probably going to going to change that that line a little bit. And, you know, you need to be mindful of that on a going forward basis. So just to just to uh, reiterate the process that you said earlier, Franklin, uh, rule subject to a 60 day comment period. I think that ends officially like October 30, 31, something like that. Uh, and then the agency, you know, takes a few months to incorporate, you know, assimilate those comments and maybe adjust accordingly, maybe not. Uh, but I think it's kind of viewed that it, second quarter of 2024, second quarter of 2024, the final rule will be issued and maybe implemented, you know, early effective date, early third quarter of 2024. So I think that's the proposed kind of cadence of timeline at this point. And uh, as always, we'll be reporting on any changes going forward. Well, Mr. Cole, in the earlier section, we kicked it off. I alluded to how busy uh, Washington, D.C. was, unusually busy for the month of August. And the NLRB was among the most busy agencies in the federal government, issuing all kinds of decisions and uh, opinions and, and so forth. And one that kind of got lost, I think, a little bit in the, in, the, in, the, in the shuffle, certainly with regard to the restaurant industry, we were following some other, some other uh, more high-profile cases. But uh, one case that was uh, ruled on early in August, the Stericycle case, as it is known, I think has some significant real-world, everyday implications for managers for restaurants for what goes on inside corporate uh, offices and what goes on inside restaurants themselves. Can you illuminate our audience about the stair cycle decision and the ramifications more importantly? Yeah. And we had a rush of these because the board member Wilcox was um, cycling off. She's now been reconfirmed by the Senate. We'll be cycling back on, but typically the board will rush stuff out at the end of a, a board member's term, um, anything they worked on. So we had a flood of stuff for that reason. In this particular decision, Joe, it's really big and it's big in the context of the election process getting easier for unions and employers having less tools in the toolbox to make their side of the argument heard in a union election. And essentially what this decision finds is that any workplace policy, is going to basically be considered guilty until proven innocent that it chills employees' exercise of rights under Section 7 of the the NLRB. So the right to organize, the protected right to organize. And so, you know, kind of historically, employers will have policies in place like no solicitation policies or, you know, no use of company email for X, Y, Z, or, you know, like in the Memphis seven, you know, there was the, the policy of no press, you know, or no one after hours in a Starbucks location. So um, these policies and procedures 
that every employer has in place in their workplace for a variety of different reasons, health, safety, you know, the employer, the burden will be on the employer to prove that there is a reason that that rule is in place and that is not intended to chill organizing activities. And, you know, if you go back to the old Amazon cases in Alabama, um, there were a bunch of unfair labor practice complaints filed about how uh, the employer acted in that. And the employer fought and litigated and said, we did this because of that. And it had nothing to do with union organizing. The assumption now is going to be that it had to do with trying to stamp out union organizing. That was not the case before. It's it, it is super interesting in the ramifications, Franklin. I mean, I think, you know, the real world ramifications, anybody listening to this podcast ought to go back with their HR people and legal people and review their employee handbooks to make sure they're in compliance with this new, new standard here. But I mean, you, you said, you know, basically it's you're presumed guilty until, until proven innocence. The board specifically noted that ambiguous rules are going to be interpreted against the employer. When in doubt, when there's a gray area, it's going to be interpreted against the employer. That's man, that is a huge, huge step. So an employer, essentially an, an employee can, can make the case that, you know, I, who, who knows where the end is, but you have an employee, you know, powwow in the restaurant. Is that coercive? Are you making them, you know, what are you talking about? And, and it's, it's, it's making it easier for any employee to feel, feel like they were coerced into some type of conversation to infer a political or social or outside, you know, influence about unionization, whatever it may be. And the employer now has the burden if, if a complaint is filed to go proving otherwise. It's, it's pretty, it's breathtaking. You see the, the playing field being tilted in, in a hundred different ways here. You, you kind of were leaning into captive audience. You, you know, the NLRB is on a path to ban captive audience meetings. We have banning at the, at the state level. That's one tool in the employer toolbox. The, the employer typically will restrict use of company email for, you know, only certain purposes. You know, the NLRB has expanded, you know, kind of a return to purple communications where uh, the, the ruling in the Obama era where, you know, that that is allowable. Company resources can be used for, for organizing. If you're going to, you know, ban after hours meetings with employees in the store, you better have a health and safety reason to do that. If you're going to ban posting of materials in the break room, you better have a good reason to do it that does not have to do with chilling labor organizing. If you're going to prevent employees from hanging out in the parking lot or in the alley behind the restaurant, you better have a good documented reason to do that other than to chill labor organizing. If you're going to disallow employee Facebook groups or disallow any of this stuff, any of this stuff that historically, you know, you may have just done it because it made sense and everyone did it and it's in the handbook, it's in the work policies and procedures, you now better have a pretty reasoned case and documentation to prove why you've done it. Otherwise, the board is likely to interpret it in the context of a union organizing effort as animus towards union organizing and trying to chill chill the organizing environment and going back to 
the CMIX decision that could automatically lead to representation. So, you know, that's and that's where this links to CMIX and some of these other things is now if you have a non-solicitation policy in the books that you, I'm just making that up, but you have any sort of policy procedure in your workplace. Now that could be an unfair labor practice right out of the gate and lead to recognition immediately. Uh, it's just, I, I find it absolutely, absolutely fascinating uh, for the board to explicitly say, Hey, we can't figure it out. We're just going to rule for the employee, man. It's a, it's a new day. Uh, I, you know, I'm literally speechless but I, I will implore anyone listening to make sure that they have their handbooks reviewed against this new standard uh, because the board will be looking, looking for new unfair labor practice cases. Remember, they're trying to get every case they can into court to get new standards that are the old new boards can't can't turn over. So there's a there's a method to the madness, my friend. And uh, we'll continue, as, as you alluded, um, as Wilcox was confirmed uh, this week uh, by the Senate to another term. Uh, and so we'll see a lot more of these cases coming forward. And the next the next term that expires that would they that would give two Democrat votes. There's only one repub now, but there's another repub that needs to come in is until December 2024. I think it's McFerrin, but um, yeah, but after the next election. Yeah. yeah. So we've got over a year, a year and let's call it a half ish of uh, runway for. Uh, the majority on the NLRB. So there's there's going to be no slowdown of this over the next year and a half. And we will be reporting on it. Well, Mr. Coley, you are, you know, you always have your finger on the pulse of social fabric of America and what's trending hot. And I mean, I know you had ear low to the ground on the latest fashions and, you know, the latest cool restaurants and movies. Ms. Coley, the, um, we've talked at length on this podcast about, you know, social activism and we see, you know, Hollywood actor strikes and message music. And it seems like the, the left of center world has controlled the entertainment world forever. And when anybody steps out of that bubble, uh, and says something contrary to that norm, they are ostracized. But it seems like now we have more and more artists, actors, musicians, whomever it may be, that are loudly and proudly uh, touting their right of center credentials, no more uh, prevalent than in the music and specifically country music uh, scene. What is going on out there uh, socially, culturally with regard to kind of I don't want to say anthem music, but politically, politically sensitive art. And the jumping off point here is Axios did a the new playbook for conservative chart toppers piece that kind of dove into this. What's what's interesting, and they talk about Richmond, uh, north of Richmond, which is pretty good jam. I, I I listened to it like six times on the way to the Coke Four Hundred the other weekend just to get right in the right head space, you know. So, but. But the the issue here ties back to something we've been talking about for five years in this podcast show, which is increasingly politics and culture and and consumer decision making have been mixed together. And increasingly politics has been has become kind of a consumerism within itself and and 
and consumers have been projecting their politics onto brands one way or another. And brands, in turn, recognizing that, have been advertising themselves on, on their politics. And historically, we've talked about Black Rifle Company versus, you know, Starbucks being kind of the, you know, I think this is now, we've been talking about it for years. It's been evolving. But I, I think, and this piece in Axios really goes into it, where there is this crystallization of this kind of consumer ecosystem around politics and, 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 and politics infused in, in crossing up with consumerism. And you saw that with like the Bud Light boycott, where there's real actual bite to, to the boycott. And you've seen it turn in in other ways, and I, and that's what this article kind of dives into is now on the cultural front, movies, music, etc. That kind of crystallized ecosystem is supporting the stuff that's outside of Hollywood. You know, the other thing they referenced Joe was like the Sound of Freedom, which is a movie that you know, basically, it's kind of legitimizes and funded initially by the right of center ecosystem and then has jumped more into the mainstream now is playing in theaters and stuff. So I thought it was super interesting. And there's, there's just one quote that like, that I wanted to read out of here. And this is, this is from a uh, music industry guy at a Democrat, cut his teeth in kind of Democrat politics. But anyway, whatever. The quote is this. This isn't a one-hit wonder talking about this dynamic. There's starting to be a formula that's working and the left plays into it every time. And essentially what he's saying is these folks come out, they release a song, a movie or whatever. The left goes crazy opposing it. And that fuels interest and sales on the right. And that's like a winning playbook for selling a product or service in this this marketplace that has emerged and for our brands that are just trying to sell chicken or a hamburger or whatever else this this dynamic becomes challenging because it can be easy to get pulled down into it and that's what we saw at the bud light boycott so anyway joe it's just one more kind of data point on this ongoing conversation we've now been having for years about how politics and the sorting of politics is melding into consumer decision making and creating this kind of new environment that is tough, I think, for brands to navigate. Yeah, it's super fascinating. I, I do. I do still think, you know, you're the, 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 the control levers are still all controlled by kind of one side. So it's while the tide goes in, the tide goes out, the water level still rises. So I'm not quite sure how long and sustainable it is. You know, the, the, the people that, that, that feast on this cultural stuff tend to have um, a short attention span. So it's certainly interesting to watch and uh, kind of fascinating how politics is bled into every part of our country's yeah. social fabric. The other thing that um, we, we included in Midnight Reads, I think we talked about in a previous podcast, was the head of Edelman, you know, within the past month or so, basically said something similar. He said, look, companies need to be more deliberate in this space and, and you know, kind of cold in a cold and calculated way, look at their 
CSR, ESG footprints, and how they're tipping their toes into these spaces and understand that there's cost and benefits. And um, because consumer consumers are becoming much more attuned to these issues and it is impacting kind of buying decisions. So sorry to interrupt your, your nice close there, Joe, but I wanted to throw yeah. that last that last little Edelman piece in because it was a good it was a good piece in the past couple of weeks. Um, that we pushed out to our clients as well. Mr. Coley, you interrupt my closings all the time and it's most welcome. It proves to our audience that we're not scripted. <laughs> we're actually talking about what we think and feel. So we are not robots here, my friend. So you're, anytime, anytime. So yeah, super interesting and we will continue to monitor. Well, Mr. Coley, as we tape this podcast on Thursday, September 7th, the year of our Lord, 2023. Tonight, a blessed event happens across the United States of America. The National Football League season begins. Franklin, and this weekend will begin all NFL, full NFL schedule. Long national nightmare. The biggest gap between seasons in professional sports finally ends. Restaurants and bars will be stuffed this weekend, full of patrons, libating, eating, watching NFL football. For a few of us, maybe there may be a little wagering on the side. I don't know. I don't want to get into that. Could be, could could not be. How would you be amazing? Hey, can, we, can we just pause for a sec? Two things. Sure. One, why do you do this to yourself every year? Like why? And then what two. Why do you put yourself through this NFL season every year? You're going to start this week with these with these high hopes that will be dashed away, if not in week one, certainly by week three, and just foot on your throat again and again and again. I mean, why do you well, I'm from Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C. is the town that was built to demonstrate where idealism goes to die in the face of reality. And as such – I'm a Redskin fan, and we all start the season with high hopes about what what will happen. And, and we know at the end of this sausage-making process, like Congress, it'll be a complete disaster. And but that's but if you're not optimistic in the beginning, man, you're gonna you you, you can't you got to start off optimistic, frankly. Yeah. The other the other piece, I can't believe how like just acceptable it is to to wager now. It used to be kind of like uh, you snuck off to Vegas. You didn't really like impolite company. Well, we can't in the free, the free state of Florida. You're not free to wager, but uh, I have found ways around that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's common, but ESPN is running, running the, you know, the over under and crap, you know, and the, and the ticker. So it's crazy. Uh, Anyway, continue. No, no, I just, I am happy for our, our friends uh, in, in the restaurant world. You know, our friends at Buffalo Wild Wings and, and places like that, that, you know, still aren't fully back from the pandemic and, you know, sports, you know, and there are a lot of places like Buffalo Wild Wings, don't get me wrong, but this is coming along at a good time to get those restaurants back full, back operating, you know, and nothing drives customers in a bar like the NFL. College football doesn't do it. The NBA doesn't do it. Baseball doesn't do it. NFL drives customers into bars, drives beer sales, drives chicken wing sales, burger sales, whatever it is. So 
Uh, I'm happy that our friends at Smoky Bones and Buffalo Wild Wings and Outback and a hundred different places will have tons of sports fans in their restaurants uh, starting this weekend for the next six months. So kudos to those operators and um, uh, hope they all get, get their NFL seasons off to a good start. Franklin, I will be watching a lot of NFL football this weekend. I hope you will as well. My guess is you will not be. You're going to probably, are you, what are you doing this weekend? Are you sitting in a tree with a bow and arrow? Are you on the ground with a shotgun? Like what, which one of God's creatures will you be eliminating this weekend? Opening weekend of archery season in North Carolina. So oh, okay. I will be up a tree with a bow. Gotcha. Probably not seeing anything or shooting anything, but there's nothing better than my first spot is two feet off uh, a river that I will wade through. Fish? There. And then I wait. It's a, there's a little crossing. It's like a little, it's a pinch point where in the national forest where they go out to a private cornfield. And so um, there's a little crossing, there's rapids up above and it's like, 10 feet deep and there's rapids below and there's this one section where the deer can cross. So I will be sitting and it's glorious surrounded in a valley of rhododendron, watching the sunrise sitting beside a babbling river, whether you shoot anything or not. So that's what I will be doing, my friend, but I will be watching my Tar Heels in the evening. Um, one in one, kind of like you, you know, every off to a good start. I'm sure we'll be, Super disappointed. Probably drop one to App State here this weekend, but uh, but yeah, it's I will be getting a little football, but not NFL. Well, uh, it's it's that time of year. Schools are back in. Labor Day is over. It is time to focus on the rest of Q three and on Q four, and uh, we will be right there with you along for the ride. And on that note, we will talk to you next time. Until then, stay safe, stay informed. We'll see you next week. 